Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Luke chapter 16. We're going to begin in verse 19. We're continuing on in this wonderful gospel where we get to see uh, the life of Christ. We get to read his teachings, look at his parables, and uh, we get to look at one of his parables this morning. Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. And Jesus is telling this parable to the the Pharisees. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off uh, and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, there is between us in you a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that, they may, so that he may warn them lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Father, I pray that you would open this text to our eyes, that we would be able to discern them spiritually. Father, that it would affect not only our emotions and our minds, but that uh, it would move us to action and faith. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And J.C. Ryle says, There's no infidelity or skepticism or unbelief after death. It's a wise saying of an old divine that hell is nothing more than truth known too late. Let me read that one more time. There's no infidelity or skepticism or unbelief after death. It's a wise saying of an old divine that hell is nothing more than truth known 
too late. This is one of the most uh, terrifying passages of Scripture where we get to not only peer into hell, but also get to hear from one who is there, who's discovered truth too late. And like so many of Jesus' parables, Jesus takes us ahead in time by his mercy and grace to show us what will be in the future. This is a parable of shocking reversal. Absolute shocking reversal. The Pharisees could never imagine that this beggar would end up at Abraham's right side and this rich man would end up in hell. It was the common belief of that day that if you were rich and you were healthy, uh, you were blessed by God. And if you were poor and you were sick, you were cursed by God. God was unhappy with you. You remember Job's friends? They insisted that Job's suffering was because of his sin. Uh, remember the disciples asking Jesus regarding the blind man? He said, who sinned, this man or his parents? Surely he's blind because he's cursed. So the common thought, Jewish thought of those days would be that a beggar that is sick and has no money and no standing in society would ever end up in heaven at God's right hand. It's a shocking story. And it's a story that is devastating when you consider the rich man's plight. And it's important to realize that the main thrust of this parable, there's so many things. I think when I sat down and read it, I had 27 possible points you could talk about, things you learn from this parable. But every parable has a main thrust. And the main thrust has to do with how did this rich man end up in this place? And we find out in this parable that he ended up in this place because he did not listen to the scriptures. He did not listen to the prophets that would have pointed him to trust in the Messiah. This is Satan's plan. From the very beginning, Satan has two punches. The first punch is attack or twist the word of God. And the second punch is to tempt you with your flesh. That's what he did to Adam and Eve. Genesis 3, 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He comes to Adam and Eve, and he says, so God said you can't eat from any of these trees. He twists the scripture. That's not what God said. 
And they said, no, we can eat from every tree except this tree. We'll die. No, you won't die. He attacks the word and then he tempts their flesh because then we read, so when the woman saw the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and gave some to her husband and he also ate. And so this rich man ends up in hell because he didn't take serious the word of God and he gave in to his flesh. So my first question for you is this. Do you believe the scriptures? Do you believe everything the scriptures say? Do you believe the Old Testament and Do you believe the New Testament or have you bought in to the satanic lie that the scriptures have been corrupted? There's many people that will say they believe in Jesus, but they don't believe the scriptures are infallible, which is insane. What did Jesus think about the scriptures? Jesus referred to creation and Adam and Eve and Cain's murder of Abel, of Noah's Ark, of God passing judgment by a global flood. He spoke of Abraham, Lot, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's wife being turned to salt, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, not only the historical people, uh, but still uh, living in Jesus's day. God spoke of, uh, to, of Moses in the burning bush. He spoke of Israel being fed by man in the wilderness. He spoke of Mo- Moses' authorship of Genesis. He spoke of the brass serpent that healed the Hebrew believers. Uh, he spoke of David's great deeds. He spoke of David's authorship of the Psalms, of Solomon's glorious rule of Elijah and Elijah's unique miracles. He spoke of Jonah being delivered from the great fish. Isaiah's authorship of the prophetic book. Daniel's authorship of his prophetic book. Jesus said things like this, Scripture cannot be broken, John 10.35 in Matthew 5.17, he said, Do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. For truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth, uh, or until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms That's the whole testament. The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He told the Pharisees in John 5.39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you'll have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. To say... You trust in Christ, but don't believe the scriptures is insane. It's to say you know better about the word of God than Jesus knew about the word of God. 
The rich man ends up in hell ultimately, and his brothers will end up in hell ultimately because they don't take serious the word of God. Do you really think that God would seek to reveal himself to man only to have his word be unable to be preserved? That he would give his word and not supernaturally keep his word undefiled? Like the psalmist tells us in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Don't give in to this satanic lie that lets you twist Scripture so that you can indulge your flesh in the way you want to indulge your flesh because that's how Satan attacks. That's the devastating reality that we see in this parable. This is why people throw themselves into homosexuality. Well, I don't believe the Bible really condemns homosexuality. I don't really believe that was what the Scripture says. Why? Because you want to indulge your flesh. It's giving in to the one-two punch. Do you believe that what you do in this life now has eternal consequences? Do you believe that? That's what Jesus has been teaching already in this gospel. And we see it again in these verses. Let's just look at these verses again and I'll make a few comments. And then we will consider the points It says, there's a rich man who is clothed in purple. Now, to have purple clothes meant you were rich because they got purple dye from snails and it was hard to uh, abstract the purple dye. So only rich people had this type of clothing. You remember Lydia in Acts 16? She was a seller of purple goods, of clothing. Rich people would have shopped at Lydia's store. And there was a rich man clothed in purple and fine linen The linens are what you wore over your robe and you were really rich if you had fine linen as your underwear. Who feasted sumptuously every day. So get the picture. Every day, this man gets full. He feasts. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. He would have been laid there probably because he couldn't walk. There's debate whether or not this is a parable or a true account, an actual account. And the reason why there's a debate is because this is the only parable where Jesus uses proper, uh, a proper name, the name Lazarus. But most commentators believe it is, in fact, a parable. Uh, for how it begins, There was a rich man clothed in purple. That's how Jesus began parables. And the name Lazarus simply means, it's the Hebrew name Eleazar, and it means whom God is helped. And so his name has great meaning because Lazarus is the one in the parable whom God is helped. And this 
man Lazarus was covered in sores. They would have been oozing. And he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. What was a custom in those days is the rich, after they got done eating with their fingers, would often take bread and rub it in their hands and make breadcrumbs to clean their hands, and then they would throw it on the floor for the dogs to eat it. And this man longed to get those crumbs that would fall from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs that ate those crumbs came and licked his sores. And the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Uh, this is another reason why uh, most believe that this is a parable is because our bodies actually go into the grave. We're not instantly carried. Uh, our soul uh, goes to be with Christ after we die. Uh, but in this parable, it says that the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, now Hades is the place where those going to hell go immediately after they die and their torment begins immediately. Uh, we're told in Revelation that death in Hades is thrown into the lake of fire, which is the eternal hell, but it begins as soon as a person dies, uh, even as they await the judgment. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm in anguish in this flame. So Jesus describes a physical type of suffering that is looking for a temporary physical relief. Notice that he assumes that Lazarus might be a servant still in heaven. You know, send that lowly servant down here to serve me. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. And... Uh, but Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and Lazarus are received your good things. I want to point out the word your, that, that's possessive. He's saying the things you thought were good, you received. <laughs> you know, he liked the praise of man. He liked feasting sumptuously and keeping for himself. And he says, you received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you are in anguish. And then he speaks of this chasm that is fixed. Jesus is teaching there's no second chances after a person is in hell. No, no one's able to cross from there to us. And then he says, at the end of this, he has an idea that he's going to, he says, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them that they might come to the 
that lest they come into this place of torment. And Abraham points out that if they didn't believe the scriptures, they're not going to believe someone who's risen from the dead. Now, what can we learn from this? The main charge of this message is to live your life by faith in Christ, seeing eternity as the true reality. This is what the Pharisees failed to do. We were already told earlier in chapter 16 that the Pharisees were lovers of money. We know from the Gospels that they're lovers of human praise. They were not those who had the faith of Abraham and lived according to his, uh, his, his, uh, the word of God. J.C. Ryle says this, and point one in your notes is, do not live your life ignoring the reality of sudden death. And someone might say, well, how do you know that I'm going to die a sudden death? Well, in general, in the scope of eternity, you're going to die in a very short time. Whether it's in a car accident or you die of cancer over the course of several years, in a very short time, you and I are going to die. And Jesus is teaching in this parable that one must live in light of the reality of death. And J.C. Ryle says this, death is a great fact that all acknowledge, but very few seem to realize. Most of them eat and drink and talk and plan as if they were going to live upon the earth forever. Death is a great fact that all acknowledge, but very few seem to realize, he says. Everyone's going to admit that everyone dies, but very few realize it, live in the reality of it, make choices with their money in light of the reality that you're going to die very soon and eternity is at stake. That's the point. And Ryle goes on to say, he that should live well should often think of his last day and make it his company keeper. The friend you should bring along with you is the friend of death is coming very soon. That is the truth. How are you going to spend your time? How are you going to spend your money? What are you going to think about? What are you going to use your brain for? in light of the reality of this sudden death. And then Ryle goes on to say that uh, he shall make it his company keeper. And then he says, against murmuring and discontent and envy in the state of poverty, against pride, self-sufficiency, and arrogance in the possession of wealth, there's few better antidotes than the remembrance of death. So if you're poor and you're tempted to discontent and envy and poverty, you need to realize that this world will not last long. Your life will not last long. Lazarus's suffering ended. It came to an end. It didn't last very long. And so the remembrance of death is a great antidote to discontentment, envy. And it's also the antidote of arrogance 
in the possession of wealth and pride. How you live on earth matters. That's one of the main thrusts of this parable. There is a choice between present glory from man or future glory from God. And this is what Luke has been teaching uh, and showing us in Jesus' teaching all throughout this gospel. In Luke 9.23, you remember what Jesus said? He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the Holy angels. And who was ashamed of Jesus's words more than the Pharisees? They hated Jesus's words. They wanted to save their prestige and their money and their life. Eternity is of much more value than our short time on earth. That's what we must see in this parable. Death is coming soon and eternity is of much greater value. And earlier in this chapter, in the parable of the dishonest manager, remember the point of that parable? He says, and I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails they may receive you into eternal dwellings. And he tells this parable of this manager that's going to get fired because he hasn't been handling his master's money well. And so what does he do? He goes and he tries to make friends. He tries to find a house. He tries to prepare for his future by giving deals to those who owe his master money. And Jesus says that the sons of light, the believers, don't even live their lives in light of eternity like the sons of this world do. They don't live in light of what's really true and what really matters as much as this dishonest manager was just trying to make his life better on this earth. He's teaching, in one sense, a very similar thing as he is teaching earlier in this same chapter. You remember what he said in Luke 12, 15? He said to them, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. Boy, you really see that in this parable, don't you? What good are the guy's possessions the moment he dies? Matthew 6, 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so in this parable, we see that we must recognize the present reality that we will die And that all these things that we spend our time living for will be rendered insignificant. John MacArthur writes, The rich man had chosen a life 
of proud self-righteousness, including materialistic pleasures and comforts apart from the true righteousness of God and was enduring the consequences of his choice. And then he speaks of the great reversal you see at death. I mean, it's incredible. Here's what MacArthur points out. After death, however, the situation of the two were completely reversed. The rich man became poorer than the poor man had ever been, while the poor man became richer than the rich man had ever imagined. The poor man was on the inside of heaven, while the rich man was on the outside in hell. The poor man enjoyed a great heavenly banquet, while the rich man was totally deprived. The poor man needed nothing. The rich man lacked everything. The poor man had all his desires fulfilled and the rich man's desires would go eternally unfulfilled. The poor man was satisfied. The rich man suffered. The poor man was happy while the rich man was tormented. The poor man was honored while the rich man was humiliated. The poor man enjoyed a lavish feast while the rich man longed for a drop of water. And what brought about the reversal was death. Death being plunged in to the eternal, which is ultimate reality. See, we live a fantasy life when we live like this is all there is. And this is as long that this life's going to go on forever. Now, none of us will intellectually say that, but often we live this way. We don't live in light of the reality of the future. And the rich man was not in hell because he was rich, for Abraham was rich. He was in hell because he did not believe the Scriptures. He did not trust in God and in his Messiah by faith. Remember just a few verses earlier, Luke 16, 15? You are those who justify yourself before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Here's what, here's what he's telling the Pharisees. What you think is great and honorable is an abomination in God's sight. And we get to see it when we see the rich man being tormented in hell. This is exactly in Luke 1 when Mary was told that she was going to give birth to the Son of God and in the Magnificent when she writes this song and prophesies in this song, she speaks of this great reversal that's going to happen. And in verse 51, he says, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. With the birth of Christ, this is what's going to happen. The great kings of earth are going to be reversed and the nobodies of earth are going to be exalted. Because this child is going to be born. And I'll point out in Luke 1, 51, where it says, He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. That's the terrifying aspect of hell that we're going to look at now is, 
is another way to render that is they're left, the proud's left to the wandering of their thoughts for all eternity. Hell is a conscious place where you're left with all your regrets, with a clear mind, and the you're left remembering and thinking and seeing and knowing that there's a heaven where I am not. One of the most terrifying parts of hell is you don't lose consciousness there. Which leads us into our second point. Do not live your life ignoring the reality of hell. There's a lot of people that say they believe in Jesus, but they don't believe in hell. Which also is crazy because Jesus is the one that taught us almost everything we know about hell. It's from Jesus that we get a look at this eternal punishment. Almost everyone who believes in heaven thinks they're going there. And the scripture tells us that most of the people that think they're going there aren't going there. And that was the case of this rich man. He, he would have been a good Jew. He's calling on Father Abraham. He's in the right ancestry. He, he thinks surely all Jews are going to heaven, especially the ones that are rich. And it's proven that God has blessed them. And yet this rich man gets what he could have never guessed he would get. And over and over, Jesus taught us that on Judgment Day, people are surprised. Luke 13, 23, someone said to him, Will those who are saved be few? He said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. The door is narrow. Many are going to seek to enter most won't be able to enter. And then he says this terrifying, gives us this terrifying parable. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside, knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he'll say to you, I do not know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, meaning we came to church and we took communion and all that. And you taught in our streets, but he'll say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. There's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth because it's a person who thought, I'm going to heaven, and they find out in the end, they're not. Matthew 7, 13, enter by the narrow gate for wide is the way that leads to destruction or for the way is easy that leads to destruction. And let me read that again. Enter by the narrow gate for wide for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. And the crazy thing about this text in Matthew 7 is the context is not the context of all humanity. He's not saying more people are going to hell that are going to heaven. The context is those who say they're going to heaven. Those who say, Lord, Lord. Those who declare themselves prophets. And he's saying you'll know them by their fruits. The context is out of those who say they 
know God and call him Lord, many are going to be on the easy wide road and few will be on the hard narrow road and enter heaven. Someone says, well, I don't believe that. Well, you're at odds with Christ, the one who's risen from the dead, the one who's fulfilled all the prophecies of the Old Testament. Matthew 7.21, later in the same chapter, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? You know, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works. They claim miracles. They claim casting out demons. Then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's a terrifying reality. Hell is real. Jesus talked about it over and over and over again. John 15, 6, if anyone does not abide in me, is thrown away like a branch that withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Robert L. Thomas summarizes the Lord's teaching on hell. Throughout it, Throughout his ministry, Jesus taught that the lost would depart into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels and eternal punishment. In other words, they will suffer endless conscious agony away from the presence of God and his son. None of the other options that confuse the evangelical spectrum are viable in light of Jesus' view of eternal punishment. See, the reason why people struggle with hell is they can't imagine punishment that goes on forever as horrid is the way Jesus describes it. And the reason why they can't imagine that is because they can't imagine God's glory. They don't know what sin is. They don't know. The interesting thing from this parable is the rich man, he doesn't say this isn't fair. He just asks for mercy. He just asks, give me a moment of help. He's not even asking to get out. Because he knows, he sees. He's not saying this is too long. Do not live your life ignoring the reality of hell. When we ignore the reality of hell, we don't talk about it. We don't witness to our family members. We don't. Practice sharing the gospel, knowing that that's the only thing that can save a person, is the word of God. It's so easy to live as though hell doesn't exist. And what we see is the rich man, he knew his guilt. He didn't say it was unfair. He pled for mercy. He sought for relief from his punishment. Notice his flaw His plea for mercy is to Abraham. It's not to Christ. It's not to God. He still thinks the reason why God should be good to him is he's born into Abraham's family. What can Abraham do for a sinner? All Abraham is is another sinner that is an example of trusting in God's promises. He's an example of faith, the faith of a sinner. That's who Abraham is. What we learn 
is that hell is separation from any good blessing of God. And it's the presence of God's wrath for all eternity. You say, why not for a hundred years? Because you didn't sin against a God that's finite. You sinned against a God that's infinite. And so one sin against an eternal God requires eternal punishment. And hell is not a place where a person becomes better. It's a place where a person receives the wages for their heir. And the wages for their heir is eternal punishment. Notice there's no opportunity for evangelism after death. None. Heaven's a great place. I want to go there, but I know once I get there, I don't get to come back and witness to my family members and my friends and those at work. That's a privilege that you enjoy on this earth that you will not enjoy in all eternity. J.C. Ryle says, unconverted men find out the value of a soul after death when it is too late. Remember when Jesus said, what if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? (laughs) What's his point? It's not worth it. And yet we'll live for the what? How much you make a year? We'll live for our little peanuts and our little power and our little glory. In rebellion to what's promised those in Christ for all eternity. But the unconverted man sadly learns this too late. The third thing we see is do not live your life ignoring the reality of the words of life. Here's what we see at the end of this parable. Once he finds out that there's a great chasm fixed in verse 26, and they're unable for people in heaven to come down to hell, to help people in hell, and the people in hell are unable to go to heaven, once that reality is fixed, the rich man says, well, okay, maybe someone can go from heaven, be risen from the dead, and go and proclaim to my brothers and tell them not to come here. Maybe that miracle can be the thing that will work. He says, I beg you, in verse 27, Father, to send him, Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come into this place of torment. And Abraham said, they had Moses and the prophets. They had the Old Testament. Let them hear them. And he said, no, no, 
There's a better way. No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. This is what the Pharisees did continuously. Show us another miracle. Show us another sign. Then we'll believe. Just do one more. And Jesus says an evil and adulterous generation looks for a sign. Looks for a miracle as confirmation. There's whole denominations built off this premise. If you really want to see the work of God, yes, God's word's true, but you got to look at the miracle. You got to look at the sign and wonder. That's really what's going to change people's minds. The unbeliever will not get saved by seeing a miracle. That will not save them. And ironically, in this parable, Jesus names the poor man Lazarus. And in a very short time, a real man named Lazarus is going to rise from the dead. And that's going to be the very thing that ticks the Pharisees off and says, let's kill Jesus. It doesn't work. The greatest miracle in the world, Jesus Christ being crucified, coming from the dead. was not enough for the majority of Jews to trust in him. Remember what Peter said? I was on that mountain when Elijah and Moses on the Mount of Glory. I saw one of the greatest visions ever seen, but we have a more sure word than this. And then he points to the scripture. He compared his miracle to the scripture and he says this is the more sure word and Abraham says nah they're not going to change their mind if they don't believe the scripture miracles are God's prerogative he does them when and how he wants to do them but he converts people with the gospel of Jesus Christ with the scripture Repentance comes from conviction from the scriptures. Jesus affirms the Old Testament here. What we see is scripture is preeminent to any sign and wonder. Remember what Hebrews chapter 4 says? For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What do you think of the Bible? When you think of the scripture and you think of a miracle, how do you think of them? Do you think of this miracle as this great glorious thing and this scripture as this boring dead word? Or do you think of it as living and active? Going into a person's soul and and discerning, showing them the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no one can be saved apart from repentance, turning from sin and trusting in Christ. And no one will ever do that unless the Word of God comes into a person's mind by faith and exposes the sin and shows them who they are and leaves them naked and hopeless before a holy God.
Only scripture can do that. That's why we're not surprised when we read 1 Peter 1.22, when Peter says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. That's how a person's born again. Through the living and abiding word of God is how you get spiritual life. And my question is, is this is the first week of the new year. And in light of what scripture is, the living and active word of God. And it's the true reality. It gives us the glasses to see with right perspective and order our lives and our actions in every aspect. How are you going to prioritize the Word of God in your life entering the new year? You see, a person gets saved through the Word of God, gets sanctified through the Word of God, and the promise of our glorification and the, the thing that will bring it about is when we see the Word of God in the flesh. 1 John 3, when we see Him, we'll be like Him. That's when our glorification will come. So, so we're ne- Scripture is never old news. It's what we need. Romans 1.16 says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. How can Paul say this? <laughs> the gospel's what's getting him beat up. The gospel's what's ruining his life down here on this earth. And he says, I will not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for everyone who believes. There's no other way. And so Jesus calls you and I to deny ourselves and follow him. To lose our life in order to gain life. To value our soul over money and prestige. And we don't get maybe a more vivid image than in this parable. of the consequences on whether or not one trusts in Christ. It's not how good a person you are. It's not how much money you have. Abraham is with the righteous because Abraham had righteousness counted in his account because of his faith. He trusted God's word. That's the only way. That's how people were saved in the Old Testament was trusting in a merciful, loving God that would forgive sins. That's what David believed. That's what Isaiah believed. That's what all the Old Testament, that's what Moses believed. He knew that God revealed himself as a God that is merciful and gracious, a God who pardons sin. 
And the question is, is have you trusted in Christ? Because all of us will die. It'll be sooner than we think. Anyone older than me that is watching me raise my four daughters, they all say the same thing to me. Enjoy the time. It goes like that. Just, it'll be gone in a flash. Can't believe how old I am. I don't feel this old. You want to know what that tells me? Scripture is true. Life is a mist. I remember Pastor Salem telling me a year after Beulah, his wife, died, he says, Sam, all them years, however many years it was before she died, seems like less time than the last year of being without her. What he's saying is, my life's like a mist. It goes fast. But for those of us who are in Christ, we can rest secure. Isn't it comforting that the moment Lazarus dies, God cares for him? Now, the rich man gets a funeral, according to the parable. He gets honored. But Lazarus has the angels bring him right to Abraham's side. Can you trust God with your soul? You can trust God with your soul and with your life. So my prayer is is that you would, God would give you a heart that sees eternity as more real than this fleeting world that's passing away along with its desires. Father, I pray that you would use this word, this parable, and you would heighten our love for the scriptures and for the gospel. Father, we know that no person can be saved by merely thinking harder. There needs to be a supernatural miracle that takes place where a person is born again, and we know that happens only through the gospel, for through your word being preached. So, Father, I pray that we would be faithful witnesses of that word, that we would cling to it ourselves. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.